Wow, it's a privilege. It's a privilege to be here this morning. And uh, I'm so excited to open God's Word with you. I mentioned that this is a sermon that was really written with an eye towards a baptism service. But that's okay. The reality is the, the real heart of this sermon is it's a sermon about freedom. It's a sermon that's helping us think through what it means when we sing these words, I'm free, free forever, amen. We talk about being free from sin, and yet you're going to go home, and that sin that you've been battling with for the last three years of your life is going to still be there nagging on you and tempting you, and you're going to have moments of defeat, and you're going to wonder, what on earth? How do I reconcile these truths? Is it, I was singing, I'm free. Is that actually true? I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans 6, where... We're going to find the Apostle Paul's answer to that question. And not only will we find an answer to the question, but we'll find the the means of victory. We'll find what it is that gives us victory over sin and death. And as we turn there and as we're preparing to think through this, I want to uh, tell you a story. It's a historical story that I think will maybe help us to get our minds in the right place. It's a story about something that happened on January 1st, 1863. Uh, Most of you weren't, weren't alive at that point. Uh, But on January 1st, 1863, something monumental took place. President Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, which declared that every single slave in the United States of America was free by law. They were free. What What an amazing day. Can you imagine? There were men and women who had been born into slavery. They had literally been slaves their entire lives. But on this day, January 1st, 1863, they are declared by the President of the United States to be free. And yet, January 1st, 1863, for many, many slaves in the southern United States, it felt no different than January 1st of 1862. And it felt no different actually than January 1st of 1864 because nothing changed for them. This declaration had been made. They were declared to be free, and yet they had deceivers and oppressors who were whispering in their ears saying, you're not free, shielding them from the news of what had taken place. So for example, slaves living in Texas went on to live in slavery for two and a half years before on June 19, 1865, Major General Gordon Granger issued orders to free the enslaved people of Texas. That day is commemorated with the holiday Juneteenth. I don't know if you've heard of that before. Juneteenth. It's a day of celebration, but it's also a a sobering day, isn't it? To to think about that reality, that people who were declared free woke up the next day and continued to live in subjugation, continued to be oppressed and beaten and mocked. It's, It's horrible. Everything had changed, and yet they didn't know. Our passage this morning was written because everything has changed, and some of you don't know. When Jesus Christ walked out of the tomb, He gave definitive proof that freedom is here. Freedom from slavery to sin is here. Freedom from bondage to death is here. And yet, many men and women, boys and girls, even living within the church, even sitting under the preaching of the Gospel, are living as if they do not know that this is true. That's what Paul has written this text for. Now, We're going to look at chapter 6. We're going to go all the way to the end of verse 14. But before we do that, I want to spend an extended time dealing just simply with verse 1. Let me read it for you now. Paul writes, What shall we say then? 
Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So we're going to stop here. Everything that's going to follow is an answer to that objection. And so Paul, he, he's a gifted um, teacher. He's a gifted with his rhetoric. And what he would often do is that he'd be making an argument and then he would imagine what the people listening, what they might be thinking, and so then he would insert their objection into the argument. He'd say it out loud for them and then he'd answer it. And so if we're going to understand everything that follows, we need to understand what was the argument that Paul was making and why would they raise this objection? Why does the answer matter? So let's talk about the argument that Paul's been making. What's, what's, he, been, what's he been talking about? He's been talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of what God has done in Christ to save us. And I don't want to assume this morning that everybody sitting here understands the gospel. And I don't even want to assume that everyone who's sitting here who would call themselves a Christian understands the gospel. So I want to repeat this once more. I want to kind of really quickly walk through Paul's argument in this letter so that we can understand this objection. In chapter 1, as Paul begins explaining the gospel, he begins by teaching us that there is a God. And Paul is bold. He just declares it. Not only does he say that there is a God, but Paul looks out and he says, there is a God and every single one of you knows that there's a God. You know. And, and your mom knows, and your so-called atheist aunt knows, and we all know, even if we don't want to know, we know this. And he says, we know this because God has revealed himself to us in the created world. Romans 1, 19-20. says, God has revealed himself to us. What can be known about him is plain to us because he's shown it to us in the things that have been made. So we're without excuse, Paul says. So when we build that incredible telescope and we look up to the heavens and we see just a glimpse of it, but we see a galaxy that is beyond our understanding, so God's revealing himself to us there. And then when we flip that around to a microscope and we look at the little strand of DNA and there's complexity there that, again, defies our comprehension, he says God's revealing himself to you there. And when you wake up in the morning and you look up and you see a spider web that's been fashioned outside your front door and the architecture and the design is both beautiful and powerful and it was designed by a little spider over the course of a night, he says God revealed himself to you there. And when you hold your baby in your arms and when the sun rises each morning, he says everywhere you look, God is revealing himself to the world, showing us that he's powerful, that he's awesome, that he's good. But, but we suppress the evidence, Paul says. We, we, don't, we don't want to acknowledge all of this evidence because if there is a God, that means that there's somebody who is over us. And if there's somebody over us, then I'm not the God of my own life. Therefore, I take all that evidence and I try to push it down. I find a way to look through the telescope and to teach myself that this proves that there is no creator. This proves that I am the smartest being in the galaxy and I can be my own boss. And Paul says that's what humans have been doing since the creation of the world, since our fall into sin. We suppress the truth, Paul says. But there's a problem. He goes on to explain in chapter 2. The problem is that even as we suppress the truth and we say, no, nobody's over me, we've got this nagging problem called our conscience. Because you see, this God who's revealing himself to, all, through, to us through all of creation is also speaking to us through our conscience. Because he wrote his law onto our hearts. And so even though I tell myself, oh, I'm the boss of my life, nobody gets to tell me what's right and wrong, the reality is that God's written what's right and wrong into my heart. And he's written it into the, the world. And so I do things, and I rationalize them, and I tell myself, I can do this, but even still, something inside of me says, no, you can't. But I did it anyways. The Bible calls that sin. And the Bible says that sin is not, that's not like a problem unique to you. 
Sin is something that we all do. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what we talked about on Good Friday. And we walked through that passage. I'd encourage you to go back and listen if you didn't listen to that because this is really flowing out of that. He says we've all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. We are all rebels trying to suppress God so that we can live however we want to live. And that's a big problem because the penalty for sin is death. The consequence for sinning against our holy God for bringing destruction and ruin and hurting others, the consequence for all of that is to be separated from God forever. And you say, well, wait a second. I thought thought that Paul was explaining the good news. This sounds like horrible news. It does sound like horrible news. Except Paul goes on to say in chapter 5, but God showed His love for us in that while we were still sinners, while I was still looking through and and up at the heavens and saying, oh, this proves that there is no God. I'm going to live however I want while I was still hurting other people and defaming and dishonoring God, God saw me in my sin, and instead of squishing me like a bug, God looked at me in love, and He made a plan to save me. He sent His own Son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect, spotless life in perfect obedience to the law. And then He took all of my sin in His body on the cross. He took the curse of sin that I deserve. He took it for me. He paid for it. And He said, it is finished. And if I repent... If I confess my sin and put my trust in Jesus Christ, all of the sin that should send me to hell, that should separate me from God forever, does not separate me any longer. Because He paid for all of it. He paid for my sin of yesterday. He paid for my sin of today. He paid for my sin of 20 years from now. If I go on and I continue to sin, 20 years from now, Jesus doesn't need to die on the cross for me again. He paid for all of it. And He said, it is finished. That's what Paul's been saying. And in in the midst of that, he realizes, now some of you are listening now, and and you're hearing that and you're scoffing, and you're saying, oh, well, great. Well, what shall we say then? Shall we just go on sinning so that grace may abound? That sounds nice, Paul. Your gospel is beautiful. Your gospel sounds like people can just live however they want, and they can be monsters to each other, and it doesn't matter because good old Jesus has taken all their sin on the cross. Is that what you're saying, Paul? That's the objection that Paul is is giving voice to and addressing. Does that make sense? Now listen, that is the the appropriate objection to this amazing gospel that we preach. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this so well. He says, the true preaching of the gospel of salvation by grace alone always leads to the possibility of this charge being brought against it. I say, therefore, that if our preaching does not expose us to that charge and to that misunderstanding, It's because we're not really preaching the gospel. The gospel is scandalous at its very core. The gospel is supposed to sound like it is too good to be true. Maybe you're here today and you're a sinner, and I'm saying all of this, and you're saying, wow, so you're saying that I'm a sinner, and you're saying that I could be made right with God today? And I'm saying, yes, you can. And the gospel is not, okay, Here's what the gospel is not. The gospel is not, now that you've heard this news, I want you to go home and I want you to try harder, okay? Do better and come back next week and let's talk about whether or not you deserve this. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not, okay, okay do I have your attention? Now here's a list of do's and here's a list of don'ts and let's see if you can start cleaning up this mess. The gospel is not, okay, look around the room. You just need to be better than half of the people in here. No, the Gospel says, are you a mess? Are you a sinner? Are you the very worst sinner in the room? The worst sinner in the province? The worst sinner in the world? Guess what? Jesus Christ paid for your sin on the cross. 
If you right now confess your sin to Him and put your trust that He died in your place, all of that sin, gone. Forgiven. You're cleansed. You're not a rebel anymore. You're a child of God. An heir with Christ. And you're going to live forever with Him in glory. And you say, wow, that doesn't even sound fair. That doesn't even sound right. Exactly. It's scandalous. It's the Gospel. And it's what prompted this question that the Apostle Paul is asking. Now, our passage this morning, therefore, is written to people who have put their trust in Christ. Who have received this amazing Gospel. And now they're wondering, how do I live in relationship to this sin? We're singing all these songs about how I'm free, free forever, amen. But what does that actually mean in my life? Paul goes on to explain it. So this is the, how do we live now? Might be an appropriate question. So let me read now from God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living and active word to us today. And slow down, take a breath. We're going to read all of verses 1 to 14. If you're looking at your watch and saying, well, you're just reading the text now. It's 14 verses, but he's going to summarize this argument in two points, okay? So we spent a lot of time making sure we understand the objection, but we're going to walk through the argument much quicker. Hear God's word to us today. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And now he leans into application. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And boy, when you read that the first time, it feels like we're heading into deep waters. Maybe I'm the only one who felt that. You feel that when you're writing a sermon. You think, this is deep water. How are we going to explain this in the time that we have? But in reality, Paul simplifies it. If you look closely at the text, he's really saying two things. And he uses an analogy that we can understand to help us wrap our minds around it. He uses this language of baptism to help us to understand what's happened. And here's, here's what he wants us to see. Here's what's happened. He says, when you, when you put your trust in Christ, you confess your sins, you put your trust in Him, it's not just like what God washed you off. He says, you were like positionally changed. Before you were in rebellion, you were in Adam, you were doing your own thing, but now you are in 
Christ. And because you have been united with Christ, everything has changed. And then he looks out and he says, you don't get it. So he says, let me just explain this for you. Let's just walk through this. I want you to picture this. You need to understand it. Martin Lloyd-Jones notes here, you need to understand it because there is nothing, perhaps in the whole range and realm of doctrine, which if properly grasped and understood, gives greater assurance, greater comfort, greater hope than this doctrine of our union with Christ. We need to understand this. And I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest that many, many of us in this room don't yet understand this. Perhaps we've never even thought about it. That I am in Christ. What does that even mean? Well, Paul says, all right, lean in, listen close. Let me tell you what that means. It means two things. First, here's what you need to understand. Because you are in Christ, because you are united with Christ, Jesus' death was your death. So I went to, the cross is usually over here. I didn't mean to do this. But it happened. Jesus' death was your death. Now this is where if we had a baptismal, it would be right here. And this is where we'd use the analogy. When you went under the water, it represented the reality that you died with Jesus on that cross. It's important that you understand that. God didn't just wash you off. That's not what, baptism isn't just washing you off and picking you up and saying, all right, now that you're clean, I want you to go out and try again. Try not to get so messy this time. That's not what it is. By God's grace, when you put your trust in Christ, there was a real spiritual death. And the old you, the you that was a slave to sin, the you that was a descendant of Adam's rebellious family, the old you died when Jesus died. In Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's what you were declaring when you were baptized. We pause. This is stepping off for a second. This is one of the primary reasons why we are convictionally Baptist. Why we don't baptize infants. We baptize adults. We want you to understand this. Paul is writing this chapter and he's, he's writing to them as if, as if he can say, you know this, right? Because remember when you were baptized? This is what you were declaring? Remember? Now, you can't say that to an infant. The infant's still learning how to crawl. They're not learning this yet. But Paul says, but you knew this church in Rome, do you remember when you were baptized? Here's what you were saying. You're saying, who I was is no more. He died. He died with Jesus on the cross. He was a slave to sin. He deserved the righteous judgment of God. And he received it in Christ. The old man was crucified with Christ. And he no longer lives. And you say, well, why, does, why is that important? Like what? Let's pull that down now to earth. Why does that matter? Well, Paul explains in verses 6 to 7, we know, and again, he's, he's, you know this, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Why? So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Paul says it's important that you remember this because when you died, you were set free from sin. At which point now we all ask, whoa, does that mean that because I'm a Christian, I will never sin again? Unfortunately, no. While we live in this world that is marred and tainted by sin, we're still going to feel the allure and the draw. We're still going to be tempted. That's what Paul will go on to explain in chapter 7. 
chapter 7 where he talks about, wretched man that I am, the things that I don't want to do, I do. And the things I do want to do, I, I don't do. Who will deliver me? So Paul is not saying that you're never going to be tempted, that you're never going to take a step back. But as you take a step back, and as you continue to struggle against this temptation to sin, Paul is saying you're free from the slavery of sin. Meaning, there is no sin that can master you anymore, Christian. That wasn't true of the old you. The old you was a slave to sin. But he died. And when he died, his slave master no longer had a claim on him. He was, he's gone. Now there's a new creation. You have a new master. Now some of us are living like we don't know that. We're living like those slaves in Texas. Our freedom has been declared and proved. Everything has changed, but we're still living as if we're in bondage. There's still an enemy, an old master, whispering in our ears, you'll never be rid of this addiction. You're always going to be selfish. You can't escape this. This is just who you are. And Paul is saying, no, 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 a thousand times, no, that's not who you are. It's who you were. But it's not who you are. And that reality is on full display in baptism. When our brother does go under the water on May 15th, we're going to say, united with him in death. And he's going to go fully under the water. And he is saying in that moment, the old me is gone. He was crucified with Christ. He no longer lives. We'll immerse him completely. That's the first thing Paul wants to make sure you understand. Because you are united with Christ, Jesus' death was your death. Now the second, the final thing he wants us to understand here is that Jesus' resurrection is your resurrection. So he explains in verse 4, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Which is why when we baptize Tom, I'll say Tom, it's not a secret, when we baptize Tom, we're not going to leave him under the water. right? We're going to pull him back out and we're going to say, raised to walk with him in newness of life. And we're quoting Romans 6, 4. Not only did he die to who he was, but he's become a new creation. There's a, a birth, a spiritual birth that has taken place. Which is exactly what Jesus said needs to happen. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We need to be born again. Not just washed off, not just cleaned up. We need to be born again. As a result of the fall, Paul explains in chapter 5, because of the fall, every person that is born in this world is born into sin. We are born into Adam's sinful family. Eight years ago, when Pastor Paul was preaching on something similar, he used a pomegranate. And he dropped the pomegranate, actually, which might be why I remember it eight years later. But this image stuck with me for eight years, and so I've got some pomegranates here. I actually bought, I took it up a level. I bought one of these pomegranates a week and a half ago. Amanda bought this a week and a half ago. I wanted it to look nasty. As it turns out, pomegranates age well. That's a very old pomegranate you wouldn't want to eat. But when we were born into this fallen world, we were born in Adam. So if I were to cut open this pomegranate, this represents Adam, you would see all these little seeds of the pomegranate, right? And they're all nasty, and they're all dead, because this is an old, dead, rotten pomegranate. And it's not enough for me to, to give this pomegranate a thorough washing. 
if I were to wash this this morning, you still wouldn't want to eat it. And I couldn't just like paint over it. Like it's supposed to be bright red, vibrant. It's supposed to look like this, right? So I mean, I guess theoretically, I could paint it bright red. I could maybe spray it with some pomegranate perfume. But you still wouldn't want to eat this pomegranate, right? Because it's, it's dead. And God's word says that we were born into Adam. We are all seeds in this dead sin. And we don't just need to be washed up. We don't just need to try harder. We don't just need to be painted and sprayed over and cleaned up in a nice presentation. Like, we're, we're dead. And that's a problem. What we need then is to be born again. And through Jesus, we died to who we were. So just, I'm not going to. You just smash this on the ground. We're no longer in Adam anymore. Now we've been positionally moved. Now I'm in Christ. I am in this healthy, vibrant, I'm, I'm in him. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. The Bible uses that language all the time. We fly right by it. The Bible doesn't say that you are now with Christ. You are now standing right, you are right beside Christ, side hug. You, you know, you've got all, he's right there, he's going to protect you. You're, you're behind him following. No, the Bible says you're in Christ. Use that language all the time. Have you ever thought about that? Verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So you used to be in Adam. That was you. But now you're in Christ. You're literally a new creation. And now you have have gospel power running through your veins. You have freedom. We've been singing about this freedom. You now have freedom. Freedom to to overcome temptation. Freedom not to sin. Freedom to love things that you you never loved before. Things that you were made to love but that you didn't love before. Now you have freedom to love them. And you have freedom not to love the things that used to draw you in. Freedom to have new desire, new affection. You have this now. Why? Because you are in Christ. You have that power because Jesus has that power and you are in Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones says at the beginning, he says, there's a doctrine that people don't understand, but if we did, it's a doctrine that would give us more comfort, more hope, more joy than any other doctrine. We just don't see it. Could you see that this morning? Could you remember this little pomegranate next time you feel so overwhelmed and you feel like, man, I've got no power to overcome this? No, you don't. But Christ does, and guess what? You're in Him. That's what Paul is saying. Shall I go on sinning so that grace may abound? You're only asking that question because you don't understand. You don't understand what happened. God didn't just pick you up and wash you off. He made you new. You died. You rose. You have power to live a new life now. And that's not all. Paul goes on to say, power to live a new life now and resurrection life in the time to come. He says, for if we've been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Which is why if you've been to a Christian funeral, you know that it is marked by a distinct hope. We don't just throw out empty platitudes. Oh, he's, he's up golfing in the clouds. Oh, he's, he's having a great time right now. No, no we talk with a, a settled confidence, don't we? That our brother, our sister, they are going to live forever with Christ. They're with Him now, and at the final resurrection, they're going to be reunited with their glorified body. They're going to live in the new heaven, the new earth, forever, and I'm longing for that day because I miss them, and I'm sad that I miss them, but I have a hope that sees past the grave. I'm going to see them again in a glorified body. That's my hope because I'm in Christ, and I can only believe that because I know a man who died and was buried, but who walked back out of the tomb. 
And he said, everybody who is in me is going to walk right out of their tomb just like I did as soon as I called them. That's our hope. Jesus' resurrection was not some allegory to teach us how to live a better life. We actually believe that a real man named Jesus actually died for our sins. We believe that he was really buried in a tomb for three days. That he really rose from the dead. We believe that we will really rise from the dead in real physical bodies. That we will live forever with him in a new heaven and a new earth. And so we declare he is risen. He is risen indeed. Because that's our hope. It's what it is to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to be in Christ. In his death, I died. In his resurrection, I rose. And I, and I say all of that in my baptism. And so Paul's pointing back to the baptism. He says, church, you know this. Remember? You know this. You declared this. You visibly, physically declared what God has done in and through you. Um, ben Myers this is this great quote. He says, the whole of life is encompassed in the mystery of baptism, dying with Christ, rising with Him through the Spirit to the glory of God. Therefore, does a Christian go on sinning so that grace may abound? Absolutely, positively not. Why? Because she can't. Because she's a new creation. Because she's in Christ. Will the Christian falter at times? Yes. Will there be seasons when he takes two steps forward and then one step back? Yes. Will you, Christians, still hear the enemy's invitation to sin? Yes. But here's what's changed. That invitation is just that. It's an invitation. It's not a command. It used to be a command. Because he used to be your master. But you're not a slave to sin anymore. So you can say, no. You can say no. By the power of Christ in you. Because you're in Him, you can say no. And so very quickly as we conclude, Paul ends verses 12 to 14. He finishes with an application. He, really, he says three things, but it really is saying one thing. So we're going to conclude with one application to this truth. Therefore, in light of all of this, Christian, become who you are. Become who you are. Look again at verse 12 to 14. Let not sin, therefore, therefore meaning pointing back to all that he's just said, Therefore, let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life. Your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you're not under law, but under grace. So in light of all that we've seen, in light of the fact that we're a new creation in Christ, Stop living like who you were and start living like who you are. Become who you are in Christ. That's what he's saying. You're singing about freedom, clapping about freedom. He says, now live it out. You can now. He gives these three overlapping commands. Let me just point them out real quick. He says, let not sin reign in your mortal body. He says, you have a new master now. He says, do not present your members as instruments for unrighteousness. Your hands, your feet, your tongue. He says, quit using that for sin. Use it for the Lord. You're not a slave to sin anymore. Third, present yourself to God your whole life as an offering to Him. He brought you from death to life. Who else are you going to offer yourself to? Stop living like who you were 
and become who you are. Lloyd-Jones, again, I keep quoting Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones because he's wonderful and he's worked through this passage so well. And he says, you know, on those days when I'm stumbling backwards, because I'm going to, and those days when I fall back into sin, when I hear the temptation and I, I hear the invitation and I come back, he says, I died to the realm and rule of sin when I became a Christian. I'm dead to it now. That's the truth. And if I fall into sin, as I do, so he says, this happens, it's simply because I do not realize who I am. When we fall into sin, it's because we've forgotten who we are. Paul's saying, become who you are. Go back to where we began. It was a tragedy when the slaves in Texas went on living in slavery even though they were free. They'd been deceived. They'd been oppressed. But on Juneteenth, they were finally able to live like the free men and women that they already were. So here's the question for you as we come to a close. Do you ever find yourself saying, well, that's just who I am. Perhaps your wife confronts you about your short temper. Or your conscience convicts you about this addiction. Or you, went, you, you took another two steps backward and you find yourself going back to that same old excuse. Well, that's just who I am. What can I do? That's just who I am. Listen. No, it is not, Christian. That's who you were. But it is not who you are. And when Jesus Christ died on the cross, when He was buried for three days, and when He walked out of the tomb, He proved definitively once and for all that that is not who you are anymore. You are a new creation. You are in Christ. When Jesus died, so too did your excuse of that's just who I am. It's gone. You don't get to use it anymore. It's a lie. You are a new creation. Some of us need to celebrate a spiritual Juneteenth today. Some of us have been believing the lie of the deceiver for an awfully long time. He, he managed to trick us into thinking that he still was our master. He's not. We've allowed him to convince us that sin, sin still has mastery over us. It doesn't. Let me say it as clearly as I can. No, it does not. Elsewhere, Paul writes, no temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. But God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Notice here, he's, he's not suggesting in any way that you're going to live a life free of temptation. Oh, it's a certainty. But when that temptation comes, it's not a unique temptation. Nothing's going to hit you that hasn't already hit humanity. But when you are tempted, not if, when you are tempted... God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That's what we mean when we sing free, free, forever, amen. Not a slave to sin anymore. So present yourself to God. Give your life to His work. Use your members for Him. Use your hands to serve His people. Use your tongue to declare this Gospel. Use your feet to go toward the lost. Use your mind to meditate on His greatness. Don't give your members to sin any longer. Serve Him, the One who made you and redeemed you and loves you. His death was your death. So see the cross. And as you hear Jesus declare, it is finished, understand that He meant it. Your sin is gone. 
as far as the east is from the west. And his resurrection, this Resurrection Sunday as we celebrate, his resurrection was your resurrection. See the empty tomb. The power of sin is broken. Christ has proven it once and for all. He's victorious over the grave. Make no mistake. He's not a slave to sin and death. And since you are in Him, neither are you. This is the Gospel. And Paul's pulling us in. And he's saying, you need to, you've seen it, but now you need to see it, Christian. This is your union with Christ. This is the mystery that's on display in our baptism. This is who you are. And Paul says, now, become who you are. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank You for Your kindness to us. Lord, I thank You for the fact that the Gospel is uh, so overwhelmingly unfair. It's the right word. We use the word scandalous. I feel like I need a new word to capture it. Lord, it just doesn't make sense. It defies comprehension that we who were sinners that we who were rebels, that we who, who've done nothing to set ourselves apart from anyone else and done everything to show that we don't deserve to be in relationship with You, yet You saw us in our sin and You sent Your Son to pay for our sin to set us free from the condemnation that we deserve. And now we can say there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're forgiven. But not only are we forgiven, we're also set free. And Lord, I pray that today would be a day of freedom for Your people. As we marvel at the empty tomb, and as we delight in the fact that sin and death has no hold on our Savior, I pray that You would open our eyes to see that therefore sin and death has no hold on us. That we can live differently. Lord, I pray that for our marriages today. We don't need to go back to the same fights over and over and over. This isn't, this isn't forever for our marriages because we're in Christ it's going to get better. It's going to be better because Christ is in us and we are in Christ. We're going to learn how to forgive better. We're going to learn how to slay our old sin better. Lord, we're going to learn how to walk in obedience better. It means that there's hope for us as parents. We're not, we're not sentenced to pass on all the things that were passed on to us from our mother and our father. Lord, we can pass on something new because we are in Christ. There's freedom when we're at home alone and temptations come back at us again and again. We don't, need to, we don't need to succumb. We don't need to fail. Lord, I pray that You would help us, God, when the enemy whispers and says, You can't do this. I pray that You would give us the power to say, No, I can't, but Christ can, and I'm in Him. So Lord, would You change us from degree to degree, from one degree of glory to the next. And Lord, if there's anyone here today who has not put their trust in Christ, if there's anyone here today who's been trying to do this in their own strength, I pray that today would be the day when they would confess their sin and when they would put their trust in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that they would do that right now. Lord, I ask all of these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Worship team, would you lead us?